0: Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. Today, we're going to tell you about the murder of April Marie Tinsley. So pour yourselves a strong cup of fire department coffee, and let's dive in.
1: On April 1st, 1988, eight-year-old April Marie Tinsley was hanging out with some of her friends in Fort Wayne, Indiana, right by where she lived. It was Good Friday, and she had been kind of wandering from house to house with her two friends, and at one point told one of her friends that she was gonna go pick up her umbrella that she had left at another girl's house. However, she never returned to her friends or returned home. And According to the police affidavit, around 3 p.m., April's mother, Janet Tinsley, called the police to file a missing persons report. Police started canvassing the area and searching for April, and nothing was found until a few days later on April 4th, 1988, when a man was jogging around 3.30 p.m. in DeKalb County, about 20 miles away from where April lived, and he came across April's body in a ditch. An autopsy report showed that April had died from asphyxiation and had been sexually assaulted. About a thousand feet away from her body, one of her shoes was found, as well as nearby a sex toy was found in a bag. It appeared that she had been killed elsewhere and then dumped on the site and had been dead for about two days when the body was discovered. Also on this day, a girl who lived in the same neighborhood as April said she saw April being forced into a beat-up blue pickup truck by a white man in his 30s. And so a search ensued for this man and this truck, and nothing came of it. The following day, April 5th, there was also a report of somebody who had seen the blue truck stopped in the area of where April's body was disposed of. Police released a composite drawing of the man that witnesses saw April with on April 1st, and they released this on April 7th. And the man was in his 30s, about 150 pounds, and like I mentioned, had been driving a um, pretty beat up blue pickup truck. Also something I want to mention that I was good to come across in researching this awful case was that on April 5th, two local radio stations started reward funds to pay for April's funeral and burial services, so that the Tinsley family would not have to take care of that on their own.
0: I feel like we've come across that in a couple cases recently. There was one we did recently where like an electrical company or something helped pay for a reward, and it's just really refreshing and nice to see these towns come together and like really help out when these situations occur.
1: I agree, and this case was very near and dear to everybody in the area. Um, It's it happened in a town right near where Erica and I grew up, and I think we can both attest to the fact that it was a very public case.
0: Oh, absolutely. This was this is a case that I've known about for many, many years, even prior to me really being interested in true crime. Many tips and calls and possible connections came in
1: throughout the next couple years, but nothing concrete was made available to the police and investigators.
0: So nothing really happened with this case. Police kept investigating tips and looking into things, but it wasn't until May of 1990 when something else occurred related to April's case. They discovered a message that was written on a barn in Grayville, Indiana. So this is really close to Fort Wayne. And it was near Schwartz Road in Indiana 37 that this message was written. It said, I kill eight-year-old April Marie Tinsley. Did you find her other shoe? Ha ha, I will kill again. And it was reported that this was written in crayon. So, I will post a photo of this on our social media. I do want to kind of talk about this, about this writing though, Abby. There's definitely a lot of spelling errors. Whoever wrote this spelled Tinsley inaccurately. They kind of switch back and forth between like uppercase and lowercase letters, which I thought was interesting. And I remember hearing this but I couldn't find it anywhere but I remember hearing that they the note was written and then somebody went and like scrubbed it off like the owner or something or painted over it or whatever and then somebody came back and rewrote it on the barn a second time but I couldn't find it anywhere
1: right and you know as you mentioned that I do remember I came across one article that had said that the note had been there for about a month or so before police actually went and investigated it and connected it to the case.
0: Yeah. I mean, when you look at the photo of it, even, it, you can tell that it was either written in something else and then written over top of it, so it could be seen more or something. Because there's a second second time that it says April. I think that's the most like obvious one. You can see it says April, but it's like not lining up with that April at all. So it's obvious that somebody had wrote it prior. Well, you know, it's possible
1: too that if it was written a while before this photo's taken that it just from weather had kind of faded.
0: Absolutely. Police at this point in time really weren't sure if The person that had wrote this was actually the one that was involved in April's case at all. We see so many people that try to come forward and take the blame for cases that they didn't commit for publicity or for whatever reason when it's not actually them. So then once again, everything kind of went quiet. Police had nothing really to go on until Memorial Day weekend in 2004. There was a family event at Crystal Higgs home in Grable, Indiana. So this would have been 16 years after April had been murdered and Crystal and her seven-year-old daughter Emily were at home with family and friends and Emily went out to her bike and comes back to her mom and hands a plastic bag to her and says I found this in my basket on my bike. So the mom opens up the bag and in this bag she finds a note a used condom and some Polaroid pictures. So The note that was in here said, Hi, honey, I've been watching you. I am the same person that kidnapped and raped and killed April Tinsley. You are my next victim. If you don't report this to police and I don't see this in the paper tomorrow or on the local news or I will blow up your house. And this Erica, this
1: note and his other notes that we're probably that we're going to talk about also had very poor
0: grammar, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I did my best to read it the way that he wrote it. Well, the way that it was written. There is a lot of misspelling. He spelled April A-P-R-O-I-L. He definitely did not use a proper grammar. Once again, he's got the uppercase and the lowercase kind of mixed in. He does all of his L's uppercase, but his I's are all lowercase. So that's interesting crystal thought that it was just a joke that she thought that one of her son's friends had done this because he was a teenager so that she thought it was just some sick joke but somebody that was attending the party was like um you need to call the sheriff now so apparently crystal and emily had only lived in Grable for a few years at this point so crystal was not familiar with april tinsley's case at all but the friend was and so she's like you need to call the sheriff now So Abby, like you said, there were some other girls that received similar notes. There were in total four girls that received notes with used condoms and all of them had Polaroids in them. Some of the Polaroids were of some nude photos. One of them was of a bedspread. Yeah,
1: it was like um, this like green, musty looking paisley bedspread, which one of the investigators involved in the case thought it was significant enough that maybe someone would be able to identify whose bedspread it was because it was kind of unique. But I don't believe anything ever came of that.
2: The mystery has been solved. So please go to FireDeptCoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way.
0: No, I do think it's kind of far-fetched for somebody to recognize somebody else's bedspread, but if it was... I can see why they would have released it. They did come out and say, though, that the handwriting in the notes was similar to the message on the barn. So at this point, they realize that... Whoever wrote the message on the barn was the same person that was threatening people now with these notes. So they're like, let's send in these used condoms and check DNA. And they did. And the DNA on the used condoms matched the DNA that was found on April's underwear. So at this point, they now know that the person that raped and killed April Tinsley also wrote the letter on the barn and also has been writing and threatening four young girls in the community. This case once again
1: starts to go a little bit cold. We don't find anything else out, but in 2009 police do release like a profile of who they expect the killer to be. And this includes a description which was a white male between the ages of 40 and 50. They say that he likely works, lives, or spends time in the northeast section of Fort Wayne and that he probably is around where groups of children, especially little girls, are likely to be and that he might collect toys or have a special interest to young girls. And what we can assume from you know the poor grammar and misspelled words is that maybe his education is not that high. This case starts to get even more publicity and in 2012 it was featured on America's Most Wanted in hopes to get some more information in about the case.
0: So as we know over the years DNA testing has improved quite a bit. So we're going to kind of go into the testing that the police officials completed in regards to April's case. So in about 2016 they sent the DNA that had been recovered from the used condoms and from April's underwear to a company called Parabon NanoLabs. And this company has been used in multiple cases to kind of help solve them. Parabon NanoLabs, the description that they have on their website, I'm just going to read it verbatim so that it's explained to you in in the way that they want to come across. Parabon NanoLabs is a vertically integrated DNA technology company that develops next-generation therapeutic and forensic products by leveraging the enormous power of DNA. So basically they're using the DNA that they're finding on crime scenes or from other people in order to help solve cases and close things in order to get answers. So genetic genealogy is what is used in this case to test the DNA. So what basically the definition for that is to identify a subject by searching for relatives in public databases and building family trees. In this is Snapshot Genetic Genealogy. So this is used to help build a description and to help come up with some physical features or attributes that somebody might have. With this, they can predict like skin color, eye color, hair color, if they would have freckles and come up with pretty much a composite sketch of what an individual might look like. One thing that I thought was really cool that I just wanted to kind of put out there is since they started this in May of 2018 on their website, I don't know exactly what date this goes to, but from May of 2018 to we'll say now, they have helped identify more than 160 persons of interest at a rate of over one identification per week. How cool is that?
1: Yeah, that's amazing. I love how much we have evolved in technology. where we're advanced in this DNA and can start closing cold cases or even active cases and getting closure and bringing people to justice. That's something we've been seeing too with um, doe cases, the DNA doe projects, and it's just technology is great.
0: Well, yeah, that's one of these things that it's used for is they will use DNA that they find on a Jane or John Doe and enter this DNA into this database. And then Parabon Na- Labs will use it to determine who the family, like possible family members of this individual, which it's just so cool that there's now this technology where you can take somebody's DNA and be like, Oh, you're like, we don't know anything about you. We literally have only your body and your DNA, but I can tell you who you're, first and second cousin most likely are like it's it's so cool to me and I think it's going to really I think we're going to continue to see big advancements in that and we're going to continue to see a lot of cases being solved with the use of this technology and that's what happened in this case so police sent all this information in and Parabon Nano Labs was able to narrow the search down to two brothers and that was a man named John D Miller and his brother, his name was not released, but his initials are JPM. So John D. Miller, at this time in 2018, was 59 years old. And he lived in a yellow trailer at lot number four in the Grable Mobile Home Park. So police decide that they're going to kind of keep an eye on him because he's seeming really suspicious. So they kind of watch him for about two weeks. And one day one of the officers they they go up and they start digging through his trash and they find used condoms in his trash and that dna matches the dna that they have from everything else that they've used so now they're like okay it's it's him so the detectives that were working this case finally are like we need to approach him so when they get there apparently he was getting groceries out of the back of his car and they asked him like do you want to take those in the house and he's like no And so they were like, do you want to help us with the situation that they're investigating? And he agreed to go to the police station with them. And one thing that I thought was interesting, the detective said that the whole 20 minute car ride to the police station in Fort Wayne, John was just talking with them about random things about how he had an interest in crossword puzzles and he loved to watch crime shows and that he would never, ever miss an episode of live PD. You know, yeah, it's definitely
1: a little suspicious when you're bringing someone in that you're already pretty sure you have, like, at this point, they're sure he is the murderer, and then he's talking about true crime. Like, he's not helping his case by any means.
0: No, he just sounds creepier, I think. So they, once they got to the police department, they take him in, they, to an interview room, they read him his rights, and they're like, do you know why you're here? Like, do you know why we want to talk to you? and john responded simply with april tinsley and like at that point yeah we yeah
1: there's no doubt at this point
0: yeah the detective so his name's detective martin he this is a quote from him that i just wanted to read because i appreciated it he was like i quote i tried to maintain a calm casual look at him i didn't want to jump out of my chair we brought up nothing about April Tinsley's case. And for him to say that, I was like, this is going to go well, end quote. And I'm assuming that detectives don't feel that way very often.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, typically you have somebody not giving, like, if you're guilty, often they're not going to just confess it and give you the information you're looking
0: for. Yeah. I think that this is probably like a one in a, a million chance that he's just going to sit down and be like, yeah, I know. But at this point, I mean, it had been 30 years that he had since the murder had happened. So he probably was kind of like accepting it at this point, I guess. Mm-hmm.
1: And I mean, he had invaded police for 30 years. Maybe he had some idea that it wasn't going to go well for him anyway.
0: Well, I think he probably knew that after 30 years, if police were showing up at his door about it, if he really wasn't a true crime the way that he says he was, he probably knew that when the police showed up that he was screwed. Well, and there's
1: some level of him that was trying to get caught with the notes and like providing his dna and the pictures like there was something psychological going on
0: there anyway he was definitely like taunting the police and the community with kind of being like i killed her and i got away with it and i could do it again if i want to and i just that makes my skin crawl and i can't imagine being one of those girls in this time period especially i mean we were young girls in 2004 we would have been like eight years old 2004 yeah
1: you putting it that way is now really like sinking into me because we really only lived about 40 minutes from Fort Wayne we oh, could absolutely. have just as easily been one of the victims
0: absolutely we I mean we lived really close my young cousin lived in Fort Wayne
2: Hmm.
0: so it's it's absolutely like for me when I, I like I'm the type of person who puts everything in perspective. So when I was reading this, when I have learned about the case in the past, I've always been like, that could have easily been one of us. Like could have been somebody we knew. So while police are interviewing John, he tells his side of the story of what happened with April. He says that he was just kind of out. um, He used the word trolling the neighborhood. And he was just honestly looking for any child that he could take. He said that he had never seen April prior to this day and he had gone out that day knowing he just wanted to take a girl but he didn't know exactly who so he said that he saw her walking down the street so he pulled up a block and then waited outside of his vehicle and for her to walk by and then when she walked by he told her to get in the car and she did and then he took her to his trailer in Grable which was the same trailer that he was living in when he was caught in 2018. And that is where he sexually assaulted and strangled April. And then at night that same day, he took her body to a ditch along County Road 68, like Abby had said, where her body was found. And after he dropped her off, he was driving back home and then realized her shoe was still in the car. So he grabbed it and chucked it out the window into the ditch, which is why it was found so far away from her.
1: So officials did charge John with uh, murder, child molestation, and confinement, to which he originally at a court hearing pled not guilty. A handful of months later, he did change his plea to guilty and admitted to murdering and assaulting April. He was sentenced to 80 years in prison, and... His earliest possible release date would be in 2058 when he would be 99 years old. I would personally argue that if he lives that long, they're not going to release him and they're going to deny it.
0: I absolutely would agree. And I mean, even if he does get out on his 99 after he's 99, then I feel like that he won't survive much longer at that point. And I think that that's probably what police were thinking. I. The one thing I do disagree with in this is I think he should have been sentenced to life only because he did get away with it for 30 years. I agree. I
1: don't... Yeah, I'm not sure why he wasn't or the specifics with that. But I mean, they at least made it far enough along that it it should hopefully be his life in prison.
0: So he actually accepted a plea deal, which is why. So April Marie Tinsley's mother, Janet, actually wanted John to receive the death penalty and... The like officers and detectives that were working with the case and the attorney were like you know it can take 20 to 30 years before somebody's put to death he's already lived 30 years you might as well just let him finish it out in prison i think the biggest question that a lot of people had though because he was out on the streets for 30 years was whether or not he'd ever done anything to a child again afterwards because it's highly unlikely to see somebody kidnap and rape and brutally murder a child, and they just never do it again, and not come forward.
1: Or even possibly before April's murder, I would argue that maybe something had happened that it just wasn't either connected to him or solved, or the person, maybe he had a victim that did not come forward.
0: Yeah, so when police had brought him in and were interviewing him, they said that they went through a list of other missing children and tried talking with him about other disappearances and stuff to see if he had any connection to it or if he knew anything about it. But it sounded like he knew nothing. And he told police that even though he had gone out wanting to take somebody that day, he never thought about it again. He, he never felt like he needed to do it again. And that just creeps me out even more. I don't know. The, the whole thing creeps me out. And I was reading that there were people... So obviously he lived in Grable for a very long period of time. That's where he was in 1988. That's where he was in 2018 when he was arrested. And people said that he always went to this local restaurant in Grable and he would get breakfast there every day. And whenever you'd go in and like if somebody said hi to him, he would just kind of grunt at you and not even acknowledge your existence or anything, which just creeps me out even more about him. Like I, if you guys have not seen his photo or a mugshot, abby can attest to the fact that he's creepy
1: yeah i, I kept commenting on it to erica i was like because every article you go to is mugshots there and he just like ugh, he there's no you know with like ted bundy it was like he's a charming looking dude people i doubt like you see this guy and and i'm assuming just because i've already know what he did like you see the photo and i it makes me cringe
0: well it doesn't it just doesn't even look like he has kindness in his eyes necessarily like he just looks so cold And, like, there is obviously no remorse or anything. And it's just, it's sad to see somebody getting to that point. And I'll be honest, I don't know much about John's history, his childhood, his psychology. I don't have any of those answers or, like, any of that information. And I would be curious to see if he's always been that way or if something happened somewhere along the way that just turned him into a really cold person Either way, if something did happen, it's obviously not going to justify what he did.
1: If you guys are interested in the use of DNA to solve cases and genealogy in general, Eric and I are going to be releasing a bonus episode for our Patreons, um, talking about maybe some cases that also utilize this. And then Eric and I also sent out our, our DNA, our saliva, basically to get tested and get some information on our background and where we come from. And we're going to discuss that a little bit as well. So if you're a Patreon, look out for that bonus episode. If not, we would love for you to sign up. We love the support and you get some great content that is only made available to our Patreons.
2: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found.